Beloved congregation of the Lord, in the days of his ministry, our Lord Jesus Christ warned his people of different threats that they would face. In Matthew chapter 24, he said that after his uh, resurrection, ascension to heaven, in verse 9, they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. The threat of external of external persecution and hatred from the world, a threat that our brothers and sisters and other nations know all too well and is increasingly reality for faithful Christians here at home. Likewise, warned of false prophets, verse 11, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. The danger of false teaching, false doctrine, to lead people away from the truth once for all delivered unto the saints, a threat which the church of all ages has had to contend with. But in that very same chapter of Matthew 24, he spoke of another danger which would face the church. In particular, times of church history, yes, but we can say throughout all of church history, the danger of lovelessness among the professing people of God. He says in verse 10, And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. A sobering warning of lovelessness among the professing people of God, contradicting the calling of true Christianity, there will be... uh, professing Christians who turn on one another and those who in great offense and hatred bring reproach unto the name of Christ. The characteristic described there of the true Christian is one who endures unto the end, enduring unto the end in the way of repentance, good works, and yes, works of love. They endure to the end. And that is the distinguishing mark of those who are saved. Those who are brought into heavenly glory endure in works of love. How is it that they endure? Certainly not by their own strength. On our side, we cannot endure the same grace which is necessary to take the first step of the Christian life is necessary to complete every other part of the journey. The Lord is pleased to make his people endure. Those chosen unto eternal life shall endure. And one of the essential means of that, of course, is the means of grace. The preaching of the word, principle among them. As the word of God goes forth, it is that which the Holy Spirit uses to continue his people in deeds of love, that they may distinguish themselves as a true people of God, and in that way, rather than bringing reproach unto the name of Christ, bring glory unto him, even as we see the great day approaching. 
And here in the series on 1 Peter, the final verses of the first chapter, we come to those verses that especially concern the motivation for love. These are not motivations conjured up by some life coach, no, but they are authored by the very Holy Spirit of God for the Holy Spirit to stir up this grace of love in the heart of his people. Look again at verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And then begins a series of connected thoughts to this exhortation to love. Beginning in verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Indeed, it's through the word of God that we are stirred up unto the works of love, which we especially considered when last we were together. And as we consider these motivations, my heart's prayer is that they would indeed have this effect upon us, that if we have become sluggish in, in these works of love, if indeed we have come to fall away from the path appointed to us by our Lord and Savior, they would stir us up to love the brethren fervently and sincerely. With the Lord's help, let us consider motivations to brotherly love. And we will consider these three verses under three headings. First, we will see the grace of regeneration. Second, the lessons of time. And third, the enduring word. Less, these are each one you see motivations. We begin with the grace of regeneration. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. If the Christian life is to be characterized as one that is filled with love, we could say that the grace of regeneration or being born again is the source and root of that love. Were it not for God appointing this grace in the soul, this wondrous gift of the new birth, there would be no true love whatsoever. Indeed, the love of many waxes cold, as Jesus said, because it has not this as its fountain and source, the Holy Spirit's work in the soul. He speaks here not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Now this has been taken different ways by interpreters. Some people say that, well, it is the word of God that is the seed described here, the source of love in the soul. But rather, if you, uh, if you think 
uh, carefully about this, you see that it's actually distinguished. So we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God. So this uh, seed, which is described here, is not itself the word of God, but it comes from the word of God. It's described likewise in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed, that is God's seed, remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. So if this is not the word of God itself, but that which is brought into the soul through the word of God, then what is it? Well, I think that Dr. John Gill, the commentator, um, speaks very well here where he says, the grace of the Holy Spirit is what is referred to. The internal principle of grace in the soul, the new nature, new man formed in the soul is meant, which seminally contains all grace in it and which like seed springs up and gradually increases and always abides and is pure and incorruptible, and neither sins itself nor encourages sin, but opposes, checks, and prevents it. Now, understand, he's not saying that those with this grace do not sin, but from this seed within the the soul of the Christian proceeds no sin, for this is the grace of the Holy Spirit at work in the heart of the Christian. And it's contrasted here by Peter with the corruptible seed, really the first birth, if you will. Each one of us come into this world by means of natural generation. We are born of a man and a woman. We are born into a family. We are born into a natural life. We have with that the inheritance of a history, a legacy, a people, a nationality, an ethnicity, and so forth. So many things bound up with it which are lawful and right in their place. The connection to family, the connection to our ancestors, and so forth. But also with that comes the corruption. The corruption of the sin nature inherited from our father Adam. The first birth, you see, while it may grant many natural blessings, many natural goods, there is nothing in it of supernatural grace. There is nothing in it that tends towards heaven. So it is, we see, that what is emphasized here is the very thing that the Apostle John spoke of concerning the coming of Christ and the great division that happened among the visible covenant people of God in the days of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it is that this new birth to be born again is not of the will of man, is not something we choose to do, nor uh, far, far, far from it is it something that we inherit from our parents. 
Our children, you see, are born and conceived in sin. No, no less need, needful for a savior as ourselves. And neither can we trace any spiritual benefit directly through our parents, whatever their godly example may be, whatever their place within the church. The reality is that to be a true living member of the church is not something we inherit secondhand. No, immediately from the hand of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, out of the eternal love of God, comes this new birth. And so it is spoken of here specifically as a motivation for love. And how would that in particular be? Well, let's think about this for a moment. We have here, through this great work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the true elect church, the creation of a new family, a new nation, a new people. A people that have this in common, uh, uh, this which separates them from any other kind of family or nation or group. It is that they are of the family of God, the people of God. So it is that this is a family likeness that must uh, be shown forth. If indeed we are born of God. If indeed his seed abides within us, if indeed there is to be this entrance into a new family, there must also be the likeness unto the Father from whom this grace comes. First John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So it is. If we are born of God, what a powerful reason to love one another. This is what we have been separated unto. Surely we would understand that any family that is characterized by any kind of healthy loyalty has an affection and regard for their own. You love your brothers and sisters. You love those who are connected to you by blood or marriage or other family ties. And so also here. There is a love for one another which is proper among the family of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. So it is, this is characteristic of all Christians, all those who confess the Lord Jesus, all those born again. They love the one from whom they are begotten. From, they love their God and Father, and so also they love all those who share this common grace. They love their brethren. And so it is, the brotherly love is most proper and important for the family of God, as we spoke last time. This is something that is to distinguish and mark out the true Christian. And especially when we rightly regard this grace of regeneration as that which compels our love for all those who we, according to the judgment of charity, regard as having the very same grace. Indeed, we would have to say it is an awful contradiction, isn't it? If you would regard yourself as having been born again unto this lively hope 
and you would withhold that from those who have likewise partaken of this grace, surely you would see that your life is a contradiction. Turn with me in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Begin reading at verse 13. There we read. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but love, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Striking teaching this. You see, it's not the case that once you are born again, it is an automatic thing that you will love one another fervently. That is indeed the principle that has been born in the soul. That is indeed what the new nature desires and yearns for. And yet, within the sinful Christian who is not yet perfected in glory, there remains this war within the soul between the spirit and and the flesh, the flesh, that remaining sin nature within. And so Paul has to instruct those who have been born again that they not give in to that temptation which comes from their remaining sin nature, that they would bite and devour one another. He says, take heed that ye not be consumed one of another, verse 15. A terrible thought. That the cannibalism of a loveless Christian community, whereby instead of building one one another up, there is the devouring of one another. And the, the thought is that we ourselves will be consumed if indeed that is the life that we lead. So it is that the one who is born again, they relish this work because this is the point at which the word of your God, Christian, connects with what you most truly are. Most fundamentally, you are a born again believer. You are united to Christ through that living faith and you have the seed of faith and the seed of love and the seed of holiness within you. And what is right is that that would triumph in everything in your life, particularly in this, that you walk according to the Spirit, that you do not resist the Spirit, but that you are compelled to love those who have like precious faith. Later on in that same chapter, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Do you not see here what a powerful motivation it is to know that it is not futile to be commanded these things? Indeed, it's futile were I talking to unbelievers. It's futile if you are outside of the faith. It's futile if you are yet in your sins. And I would exhort you to love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. But where you have been born again, it is not futile because it must come out. It must be brought out if you are a true Christian. And it is not hopeless if you fall into sin because that principle and seed of your repentance and turning unto the Lord is there and it can never perish. Thus I understand this first motivation that is found in our, uh, in our verse. But next, I would like to especially direct you to the second uh, motivation for love, and that is the lessons of time, the lessons of time. And this I find particularly here in verse 24, striking words in their beauty, but we ought to not be so awed by them that we don't try to understand their practical use here. He says in verse 24, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Now we read from Isaiah chapter 40, because that in particular is a quotation from a larger section. And I'd love to spend an hour just going through the themes there in Isaiah 40, but I think it would be better just to focus on clearly that section from which this comes, just to understand why it is that, Paul, that Peter goes so naturally in speaking about motivations of love to this verse in particular. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 40 now, and uh, begin reading at verse 5. Isaiah 40 and verse 5. There we read, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Here's the immediate context. You need to understand it's a prophecy of the coming of Christ, inclusive of the coming of John the Baptist, who's the voice crying in the wilderness, and he is the one bringing comfort unto the, unto the people. He, through his shed blood, is bringing salvation. And he is the Lord, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed through him. And all flesh, all human beings will see it together. So that is the context of what the prophet is about to say in verse 6, where we have the striking verse, the voice said, cry. Now, I trust those commentators are correct where, where they say what seems to be happening here is that you have the witness of all gospel preachers. Gospel preachers who are called upon by the Lord, who speaks unto them and calls them to speak. Speak a word about this great revelation of Jesus Christ. The voice, the voice of God said, cry. And he said, the preacher, and he said, what shall I cry? There is the great question of every one who would be called to speak for the Lord. Who am I, a man of unclean lips? What can I possibly speak? What can I cry in the name of God? 
What will the people hear as a true word from God? What is it that I am to speak? And the answer comes from the Lord. What is it that the mouthpiece of God is to speak? It is this message. All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. A beautiful verse in one way, but also a very troubling message. Where it refers to flesh, it refers to all human beings. All that they are, all that they have been, all they ever shall be. Every human being, all flesh here, is likened to the grass. We fancy ourselves to be the crown of creation. We fancy ourselves that we are anything here is the pride of the image bearer of God who has rejected and spurned the Lord who made him. And God says they are but grass. But maybe you say, what about the great intellectual achievements? What about science? What about technology? What about government? What about art? What about this? What about that? What about me? What about all the great qualities that I have? And, and almost by way of concession, the Lord says, oh, they're like grass, but I'll grant you this. They have a glory that is as the flower of the field, a goodliness that maybe has a little bit to say for it. There is a little flower. Indeed, not something that is completely unflattering, but in the grand scheme of things, small and unimportant. And then comes the verse that follows, the verse which Peter quotes from, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Here you see that the great lesson of time must be brought into account. That just as that grass that you would observe out there is here today and gone tomorrow, just as the smallest breeze can bring about a flower to be broken about into its smallest particles, so also everything that we are and everything we accomplish, it is temporary. It is fleeting. It's just as the author of Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It all is passing away. It is all temporary. So it is that we can reflect upon this if we would but think and use our minds. Think about all the things that when you were 10 years old and you set your love upon. Maybe you had like a toy catalog and you said, I could be happy if I only had this trinket, this bauble, this doll, this game, whatever it may be. And then the passage of time comes and you begin to say it is a childish thing, it is a worthless thing. If it were shown to you today, it would just be one other thing cluttering up your house. So it is that someone else who lives for something more than that, maybe they live for career, maybe they live for money, maybe they live for esteem and reputation, maybe they even live for relationship, love, affection, pleasure, whatever it may be, things that may be proper in their place, maybe even be true blessings from God. But time will, will prove it, my friend. Time always proves it. It's but the flower of the field. It's but the grass of the meadow. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. 
Look at all the great endless ages of history. Look at the great monuments of Egypt. Look at the great pyramids, once the splendor of the world, now a wreckage, ruins of a dead civilization. So it is every accomplishment, everything that you would set your mind to, everything that you would seek to achieve, it will be as so much vanity, a temporary mist that is cast away, a temporary little plant that God has but to blow upon, and it is nothing. So it is whenever we try to order our lives, whenever we try to be as little God sovereign over our affairs, God will prove it to be vanity. He'll prove it to be futile. He will not share his glory with another. Who can be the counselor to the Spirit of God who has held the, the, the great nations in the balance? And so the whole message of Isaiah 40 goes, holding forth the great and awesome glory of God. You see, this argument is set forth in this way that through the right understanding of the passage of time, we would come to see those things that are truly viable, truly important, truly eternal. It's a similar argument that is found in the, in the 103rd Psalm in verse 15 and following. As for man, his days are as grass, and as the flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. But, he says, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. For those who know the true mercy of the Lord, for those who do keep his covenant, they have an inheritance that will not pass away. It is not just the, the vanity of this life. It is not just the temporary fleeting things that the worldling sets his affection on. No, rather, they have a common inheritance. They are the people of God. They are born again unto a lively hope, if indeed they are the true people of God. And does it not bring so much correction, dear one? When you set your things upon your heart upon the things of the world, then indeed you find that your love waxes cold. When indeed you grasp tightly to the things that cannot last, you find that the proper brotherly love is not there. But where indeed you come to regard those who are partakers of like precious faith as yourself, as those that you will spend eternity with, as those who partake of like grace now in this life and like glory in the next, when you fix your mind upon the proper regard for the people of God that the Lord would have you to, then indeed love becomes not only a requirement and duty, but something that is most rational. Why would you waste your time loving the things of the world where the things that God would have you love are permanent and lasting and solid? And at the same time, withholding love from someone that you will spend eternity with, one who is an e a never-dying soul, one who will enter into the new heavens and the new earth, 
for the passing things of this world, it is flatly illogical. It is foolishness. What a powerful motivation for love that is. I want to speak to you in this third place about the motivation of the enduring word. The enduring word. And here it's spoken of in in two ways in Peter's epistle, if you would look back there. In the latter part of verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And there again, in verse 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Here we see that what is founded here, what is found here, is the most powerful motivation that Peter uses for love. Bringing us away from just the fact that we are born again as a one family of God. Bringing us away from the fact that the lessons of time teaches us to fix our hearts upon what is eternal. Here we see that the common source of all grace and love and the proper ordering of it is found in the eternal word of God. Now, Indeed, the first way to think about that, of course, is that God himself is eternal. God himself does not change. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent, hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Indeed, the Lord does not change. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And so his word and wisdom exemplified in his son, it is also eternal. So it is that John tells us that in the beginning, before any time or creation was, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. By him all things were made. You see, the Son of God himself is the perfect revelation of the Father, the perfect revelation of the mind of God, for he has eternally been in the bosom of the Father. And so it is that all true reflections of God, all true knowledge of God, it comes from him. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. And through this word of God, through the second person of the Holy Trinity, through the one appointed to be our mediator and savior, there is the written word. The written word, that which the Holy Spirit inspires, that which the very mind of the Son of God as our eternal prophet preserved and inspired for our right knowledge of things divine and eternal and spiritual. And so it is Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
And then there in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. You see, the Bible is no ordinary book. It is a supernatural book. It is that whereby God speaks unto us. It is that whereby God reveals himself unto us. It is the very same word inscripturated and preserved, not for just one people or time, but for all peoples and all times, despite what every heretic and false teacher and false prophet may seek to lead us astray with. We know that the power word of God is powerful. It is living. It is able to overturn all of the devices of the devil. As Charles Spurgeon said, you don't have to defend the Bible any more than you have to defend the lion. You just let it loose and the lion will do its own work. So also with the word of God, it is living, it is powerful, it is enduring. But know this, that what, what Peter says, he goes further not only this, the, the eternal word of the Son and the written word, but he speaks particularly of the preached word. He says in verse 25, But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It is this which God is pleased to use to instill faith and life and blessing and peace and love itself unto his people, the preached word, as it is proclaimed by his heralds and those appointed to be his mouthpieces. Christ himself speaks unto the people and Christ himself communicates himself unto our souls. So he says in John chapter six, verse 63, it is It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. But the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. There it is. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. That wonderful word, gospel. Speaking of good news, that good news of a promised Messiah, of the one who came to purchase us with his very blood, this one who bought us with a price and so will sanctify us through his blood and through his spirit to be a people spotless before the throne of his Father, a word that is declared with authority, a word that is declared with power. The good news of Jesus Christ. It answers, you see, to the bad news. That we are sinners, that we have not loved with a perfect love. That we cannot love in our own strength. That we are condemned and deserving of hell because of our hatred and malice and contempt of this word of God. But if we would but turn and receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, then we come to see that all things are new through him. That every possibility of what we could not accomplish in ourselves, we can accomplish through him. That there is no condemnation for our past, nor any worry for our future, because Christ has loved us and died for us. And so it is that we must not despise this word, congregation. The word of the gospel is preached unto us. And what proper response could there be except that we repent of our lovelessness? 
If indeed the promise of the gospel is faithful, sure, and enduring, eternal, that all who come to Jesus Christ will not be turned away, then you, my friend, have no reason to hold on to bitterness, hatred, and contempt. You, my friend, have no reason to withhold love from the brethren. Because whatever else you may have done and whatever else you may have fallen short of, God has never once spoken unclearly. God has never once withheld from you the means of deliverance from your sin. God is speaking to you today that there is an opportunity here to truly live the kind of life that he would have you to be. Indeed, we know that in the days in which we live, the love of many is waxing cold. But I pray that it would not be so named among us. Would it be that the Lord would use this message to revive love in our hearts today? We would go home and pray, and the Lord would grant unto us greater love, greater obedience, greater conformity unto the mind and will of Christ. Would that not bring great glory to the name of our God? Let us so pray.